Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. When Russia invaded, a horrified world responded. Economic sanctions, military assistance, everything short of World War III. And amid all this reaction, there was no way sport was going to be exempt. Russia has been banned from world football competitions for now. Russians weren't allowed to take part in the Winter Paralympics, and the Russian Grand Prix was cancelled. This is tough for individual athletes, but Russia has long used sport as a propaganda tool. So, will the sporting cutoff have an effect on the Putin regime? And right now, is there a sports star in the US of all places whose opinions may carry some serious heft back in his native Moscow? They see this guy that has been an ambassador for Russia in some ways. His words carry a lot of weight over there. You're listening to Stories of Our Times and The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, sporting boycotts and the hockey player who could ice Putin. I'm Matt Dickinson, and I'm senior sports writer at The Times. I've been uh, covering the whole range of sports now for about 25 years for the paper. Now, Matt, two weeks ago, Russia invaded Ukraine. What was the reaction like on the sports desk? When some great global event like this happens, I guess the easy first instinct and logical first instinct is to think, well, does it really matter who wins on Saturday or if a ball flies into a net when people are suddenly talking about World War Three at the front end of the paper? I mean, there used to be this phrase that sport was the sort of toy department in a newspaper. And, and huh. I think a bit of that kicks in. But then in this case, you know, perhaps in particular, you suddenly realise, well, A, sport and politics are entwined and, and probably entwined more than ever and certainly in my lifetime. Then obviously I'd say the Abramovich situation at Chelsea in particular crystallised it. European governments want to create a hostile environment for Putin's allies. And while Abramovich denies political influence, just four days after planning to pass the club to charity, he's saying goodbye for good. So as soon as you actually say follow through the logic of well if there are sanctions against oligarchs where does he stand in it you know, I remember after a couple of days someone said hang on a minute if he's sanctioned does this mean buying a ticket to watch Chelsea will become effectively a sort of illegal act so yeah if you're suddenly asking yourselves those questions life suddenly gets yeah way beyond ball flying into the back of the net 
And then, yesterday, just after 9am, as we were finishing off this episode, Matt's words suddenly became very prescient. Good morning. Chelsea owner Roman Abramovich is the latest Russian oligarch to face sanctions by the UK government. It means his assets will be frozen and he faces restrictions on transactions with individuals and businesses in Britain. It's understood Chelsea can still operate under a special licence, but the sale of the club is now on hold. They also won't be able to sell any more tickets. The news broke that Roman Abramovich had been sanctioned by the government. As we understand, for now, he won't be able to sell Chelsea, leaving the football club in limbo. Also, the sports desk is looking at the reaction of the sporting world. What have you seen since the Russians went into Ukraine? Confirmation in the last few minutes from FIFA, the world governing body of football, and also UEFA, who run the game in Europe, that they are suspending all Russian teams from international competitions. The reaction of sport has been, as usual, slightly sort of hit and miss. Certainly at the start, you know, you have some organisations that come out very quickly and say, right, that's it, we're, we're out, we cannot engage with Russia at all, and then others who take their time. So, you know, UEFA, in this case, the European football body were, were quick to act FIFA sort of came out with something very half-baked at first and then realised that that just wasn't going to wash. You had Formula One has pulled out of Russia. You have a whole host of competitions. Athletes from both Russia and Belarus are now banned from the Paralympic Winter Games in Beijing. There was the Paralympics. They made a bit of ham-fisted originally, sort of tried to think of a way of including Russian athletes and then again realised that wasn't going to wash. Uh, you know, I think it's drawn attention to this idea of Russian athletes competing but not with the name or the flag or the badge and that I think the sort of ludicrousness of that stance has been exposed. They need to be measures that mean something. Let's take a personal look for a moment about what we can think about the effect of all this on Vladimir Putin. As far as you can tell, how important is sport to that man. There was a quote from Hugh Robertson, the chair of the British Olympic Association, when he talked about sport being disproportionately important to absolutist regimes. I think in, in Putin's case, we've seen that underlined. You can argue whether it's the most important thing to them, but it certainly matters. It seems to. Over the last decade or so, Putin has poured billions into sporting events. The Winter Olympics came to Russia in 2014, and of course, how can we forget that moment when football could have, but didn't come home? The 2018 FIFA World Cup. Ladies and gentlemen, dear friends, fans of football around the world, representative of the media. It is indeed a great day today. I'll take you back to December 2010, because this is when we're in Zurich at the World Cup bidding process for the 2018 and 2022 World Cups. Let's try and work out the best way of putting this legally, but um, to, say it was, <laughs> to say it was dubious would be the world's greatest uh, uh, understatement. I mean, yeah, more than half the people who were part of that voting panel have been since charged or indicted or faced some kind of corruption allegation. And we were there in our colossal naivety watching the uh, English campaign led by Prince William and David Beckham and, and David Cameron and hoping that their combination of royalty and dazzling showbiz would 
somehow win through and yes that's possibly the most naive sentence i've ever uttered in <laughs> uh, in 25 years so you seriously thought there was a chance at that point when you saw those characters floating around that maybe the england bid would succeed the really interesting thing was that putin had not turned up I remember on the eve of the vote, the fact that Putin wasn't there, the fact that the Russians seemed to be very uncertain about why he wasn't there. And I am so happy to say today that all the bidders we have received yesterday and today, and I have to make a big, big compliments to all the bidders. So we went into the, the day of the vote thinking, hmm, well, maybe we got a chance after all. And certainly the Russians looked rattled, an absolutely colossal misconception. It, it wasn't that they were rattled, is that they uh, seemed to know a lot more than we did. And what actually happened? World Cup 2018, FIFA World Cup, ladies and gentlemen, will be organised in Russia. Russia got the 2018 victory and... They'd clearly got votes nice and sewn up. And Vladimir Putin jumped on a private jet to head into Zurich to toast a victory that probably didn't come as, say, as a huge much of a shock to him. Now, I imagine that in actual fact, when the World Cup went ahead in Russia in 2018 and when the Sochi Winter Olympics went ahead in 2014, these were actually indeed big PR coups for Putin. So the 2014 Winter Olympics went ahead. At the time, certainly, it was it would, would have been seen as a colossal triumph for Putin and for Russia to have attracted it in the first place. They won medals galore. It was only subsequently that it was turned out to be one of the great corrupted sporting events of all time, that you know, this was a state-sponsored doping programme and cover-up of unprecedented proportions, but that was retrospectively. Obviously, the 2018 World Cup went ahead, and Putin gets to sit there, entertain world leaders. To many of us, is the sort of pinnacle moment of sport. So, yeah, he's won in that sense. One of the things that this has made me feel about looking at, say, the case of Abramovich. We might do something to them now, but is this essentially really for our own benefit to make us feel purer? Because, But actually, the terrible truth is that some of our sport has been for sale for years, and now we'll just swap Russians, I don't know, for Saudi Arabians. You know, I was speaking to Tracy Crouch, who is the former sports minister and has been pushing for a a regulator for football and of course people say oh well this regulator must now stop oligarchs buying our football clubs or Saudi Arabia buying our football clubs it's a lovely idea but if a Russian oligarch can buy our high street or Qatar can buy Harrods or you know if, if the rest of our assets are available then is a football club different how, how do we make it different and no one's come up with with the answer to that we're trying to correct a situation that we've allowed to run unchecked for an awful long time well exactly now i don't think any of us are going to pretend that russia is going to pull out of ukraine because of a sporting boycott how do we imagine then when we think about sporting boycotts and other boycotts that they work collectively to make some kind of a difference or are they essentially about messages we want to send to ourselves about what we can tolerate i think sports profile is higher than ever i think you know the idea of russia being 
we're heading into World Cup year in Qatar later this year and to cast out the national team from that competition is not about in itself to make Putin question whether he should be sending tanks into Ukraine. But if sport is seen to be united, sport operates across the board and makes Russia a pariah nation in every respect, then I don't think that's inconsequential. And I certainly think for the Russian people, it's not inconsequential. As Matt's been outlining, sporting boycotts and sanctions can be one lever to let a nation know that it's a pariah state. It's a lever whose tug will be felt in Russia. Up to now, we've been speaking about the Winter Olympics and football. But one sport that is simply huge in Russia is ice hockey. But here is the grandest celebration. You get to hoist the Stanley Cup. Alex Ovechkin, it's your honour. Come on up. Alex Ovechkin is a Russian superstar in the NHL, the National Hockey League in North America. And in his home country, he is David Beckham and Andy Murray rolled into one. Just what are kind of your current thoughts about the situation in Ukraine? Um, obviously, it's a hard situation. Um, you know, um, I have lots of friends in Russia and uh, Ukraine. A couple of days after the war in Ukraine began, this 36-year-old, six-foot-three hulk of a man, a long-time Putin supporter, gave a press conference in Washington, D.C. And it's hard to see uh, the war. Like, I hope uh, soon it's going to be over and um, it's going to be peace in the whole world. From Toronto, ice hockey journalist Ryan Kennedy spoke to my producer, Will. Can you talk me through what happened at that press conference? It was highly anticipated because obviously the invasion of Ukraine had had just begun and everybody was kind of looking to Ovechkin to see what he would say. And he kind of took one day to gather his thoughts. And then the next day he did answer questions. Like I'm Russian, right? Um, sometimes like some feel, some something I can control, you know, it's not in my hands. Um, how I said like... I hope it's going to end soon and uh, it's going to be uh, peace in uh, both countries. And uh, Talking about what was happening in Ukraine? Well, he's uh, my president. Um, but how I said, like, I'm not in politics, like, I'm an athlete. Talking about his support for Putin. And, you know, he tried to be, I, I would say, as diplomatic as possible. It's a hard situation, um, you know. Um, I have a family uh, back in Russia. And, uh, we here in, in North America kind of assume that you can't speak out too much if you're a if you're a Russian hockey player because there could be consequences back home for friends and family. We've seen other athletes, other Russian athletes speak out and say no more war please and, and other things, you know, kind of forcefully what, what what's your uh, please no more war, you know. Um it doesn't matter uh who's in the war, uh Russia, Ukraine, in different countries. He has previously supported Vladimir Putin quite publicly. Do you think the fact that he was kind of lukewarm, so to speak, on the war, or the fact that he, I think he said in that press conference, please, no more war, did you as a journalist, were you taken aback by that, that he wasn't maybe more sort of behind Putin than he had been previously? I, I don't think any of us expected him to really go against Putin specifically and and to raise 
anything more than the idea of he wants peace. I, I don't think we'd, we'd ever think he was going to blame Putin. And, and if he did, I think that would be uh, a pretty huge development. And is ice hockey Vladimir Putin's sort of favorite sport or top sport? Yeah, he plays the game. We've seen footage. It's a little dodgy. It, it looks like his opponents probably aren't trying too hard. It is an aggressive sport, and we know Putin likes to be that macho leader. So they're they're quite intrinsically tied, I would say. I think, obviously, we're talking hypotheticals here. And at the moment, the situation in Ukraine is it's awful to look at, to see what is happening. And I think many people will say, why are we even talking about sport at the moment? Do you think in the long term, there's any argument to say that if, and it is a huge if, Ovechkin was to speak out against Putin, would that cut through to the people in Russia in a way that maybe a politician wouldn't? As a hypothetical, I I think if Ovechkin took a really hard line that would give a a lot of fuel to not only the anti-war movement in Russia, but just sort of your everyday citizen where they see this guy that has done so much internationally and has been an ambassador for Russia in some ways. His words carry a lot of weight over there. And, and that's why it shouldn't be surprising that when it comes to politics and when it comes to Putin, Ovechkin has been drafted to help out in the past. So I think it does kind of cut both ways for Putin where, you know, he used Ovechkin for political gain in the past, but he should, I'm sure he is aware that if Ovechkin were to ever go to the other side, it would be very difficult for him. Matt, that Ovechkin story is really interesting. What do you think the significance of something like that is? It's back to this idea of of sort of unanimity. If sport is seen to act act as one, whether that's the the rest of the world or Russian athletes themselves, then it starts to add up to something meaningful. I'm not saying that every sports star has got something wonderful to say about politics or or that everyone you know, everyone has to listen to them. But I think there is a credibility now that has been gained by a lot of smart sports people. And yeah, that's that has spread, that sports stars have a voice in this, and increasingly they're willing, able to use that voice. And I, I, I don't see that that's a bad thing at all. It seems like a, a very positive thing in many ways, but of course they can court difficulty by doing it. And Colin Kaepernick, the first guy to take the knee, got a lot of flack for it. And in the case of this guy Ovechkin, if he was really to go overtly against the government, that would be quite an act of bravery. No, absolutely. As you say, you mentioned Kaepernick, and he's effectively sacrificed his career to it. The gesture was colossally misinterpreted as well as as unpatriotic, as he rightly argues that there's, there's nothing more patriotic than trying to make your country a better place for millions of people who live there. That's not unpatriotic. But I think it did show that the bravery that it can take and the sacrifice that it can take. He's, say, sacrificed his, his career in the, in the NFL. And I think those are the, shall we say, the, the gestures that really matter is when someone is willing to lose for something that they really believe in. Since 2016, the year he first took the knee during the national anthem and American football matches, Colin Kaepernick has not been given another contract by any NFL team. 
as Matt says, his anti-racist statement, which has since become a prominent protest symbol, has cost him his career. In a moment, we'll look at the history of sporting boycotts and ask, can they, did they work? But first... Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something-year-old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. The new series Queenie is now streaming on Hulu. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. Let's look now at the the, the history of boycotts. I remember quite a few. One which I was involved in most was over South Africa. Success was measured not in the campaigners' ability to stop games, which they did, but in focusing attention on the issue of apartheid, especially as it affected sport. Its influence was far-reaching and sometimes unexpected. Can you set out exactly what the boycott of South African sport entailed? Well, I think you saw across all, all the major sports, it, South Africa became a prior. So the, the IOC withdrew its invitation to South Africa at the, the 1964 Olympics when it was clear that the team would not be racially integrated. And it spread that ultimately any sporting contact with South Africa was just unthinkable because of the racist nature of the apartheid reg- regime. Sport was a huge part of South African cultural life. And this was a way of hurting the country to say, no, you're beyond the pale. It really was important, wasn't it, that to the minority white, particularly the Afrikaans uh, communities, their rugby was a really big thing. And for the English speakers, their cricket was a really big thing. It really did hurt white South Africans. You know, no one can pretend you know, not being able to play test cricket, international rugby, transformed the the situation as we saw it that took the boycott had to hold firm over many years but i think it was a a big plank of making south africa a pariah nation now the next big boycott that i recall was after the russians invaded afghanistan in 1979 the decision was taken by some governments to boycott the 1980 olympics was it in any way successful 
I think it shows that boycotts don't work if there are great holes in them. So in this instance, the Soviets have invaded Afghanistan and, and Jimmy Carter, as US president, decides that one way to put heat on, on the Soviet Union is the 1980 Olympics in, in Russia is to, to boycott them. I have notified the Olympic Committee that with Soviet invading forces in Afghanistan, neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. And he expects the rest of the world to just fall into line. But that wasn't the case at all. And although Margaret Thatcher did actually press for a British boycott, the uh, British Olympic Asso Association decided actually, no, we don't have to listen to the politicians. And there were 80 nations that competed, including prominent ones among ourselves. And Ovet's going to have to sprint all the way here. Curls away at the front and it looks like Curls going to do it. Curl is going to win the 1500 metres and Ovet's going to get only a bronze medal. Ultimately, it turned into, well, it was, it was a mess. That case underlines that boycotts don't work unless there is proper international unity. Now, one of the things that has always been argued whenever this has come up over the decades has been the assertion that sport and politics, quote, should not mix. What are your thoughts now on that? The last couple of weeks have shown that that's not practical. It's not going to happen. I mean, it's that we are entwined. I mean, when, say, we're looking at Chelsea football club owners and sanctions, when we're looking at how sport can be used in terms of a boycott, in terms of making Russia prior nation, when we're talking about Putin and and other nations using sport to, you know, say, buff up their own reputations, whether that's domestically or internationally, the whole thing is is colossally entwined. Political leaders want to use sport to political ends, and we can't unravel that. So one of the things you're saying, clearly, is that sports washing, as they call it, the idea that you can make yourself look better than you are by holding big sporting events and having people come along. That's a real thing. And if that's a real thing, then one real response to it is going to be more boycotting. The fact is that sports washing is being used all over the place, whether it's uh, being used for sort of domestic popularity or for international scope. Do we think Roman Abramovich really desperately is in love with football or saw something else in Chelsea. The Qatar World Cup, this is the year of the Qatar World Cup, which is the greatest sports, sports washing event we've seen. And there is no doubt that sport is increasingly used as a sort of escalating force. I think this case in particular has just put a huge pause on our indulgence and, and one made us wonder what we're storing up elsewhere. What are we storing up when... Saudi Arabia take over Newcastle United. What if when Saudi Arabia are involved, we already know what's going on in the Yemen. If we care about this stuff, why are we just allowing the money to dominate? I mean, sport is in thrall to money and that's what business is about. But should sport be separate to that? Should sport be different to that? Should sport be better than that? And those are big questions that I think we're required to ask now more than ever. It also suggests that if sports washing can be a thing, then the active use of sports for positive things is also something and something that more use can and will be made of. The great sadness is that I remember being in, in Russia and watching the World Cup there and mixing with locals and hearing from them what they thought about, about their leader. 
and why they're going out of their way to say this is Putin's war, not theirs. But yeah, to be in Russia was to to see a different type of Russia and to mix. Maybe it all sounds um, fluffy and lovely, but that is the sport at its best, is an international tournament when people come together and you mix in town squares and people drink together and laugh together and sing songs and they say that has happened i've seen it happen and it can keep happening but sport is also being used in very other different and less palatable ways to say the least You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Matt Dickinson, the chief sports writer at The Times. You can read more of Matt's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. The producer was Will Rowe, with production support from Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Look, if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.